you remember correctly, as we've been going through the book of Jonah, the theme, the title of this series is uh, Sovereign Mercy and Stubborn Messenger. And we see throughout this uh, narrative, this story really, in the Old Testament, we see a, a man who runs from God, rebels against God, resists God, runs from God, and we see a God who pursues him and um, brings him to full, brings him full circle, really, in so many ways to help him understand things. And we see this God, we see this God throughout the book of Jonah just constantly pursuing this, this stubborn man. And uh, that Jonah is meant to be a picture of, of, of Christians, of believers, of followers of Christ who are sometimes stubborn. I know that this message is really probably for another church, but I'll just preach it here this morning and see if it sets in with anybody. But it is true that we do have a, a, Christians do have a stubborn edge to us, don't we? And Jonah is a picture of that. He is a picture of that stubbornness that we, we deal with as we go through the Christian life, as we experience God's mercy for, for long seasons. Sometimes we experience God's grace for long seasons, and we become complacent with what God has called us to do and what God desires for us to do, right? It's like a kid growing up who is, uh, is, is, is always doing what's wrong, and there's always this graciousness towards it, and there's always mercy there, and it's available, and it's, it's, uh, it's offered to them. And so sooner or later, they stop realizing that there's a, there is a significance and there's a punishment for disobedience, right? And so they no longer think of disobedience as being important because they've received so much mercy and so much grace that disobedience just becomes somewhat natural to them. It's the same principle in the scriptural times with the Jewish people. God would show his people so much mercy and so much grace that they would become complacent in, with his commandments. And they would begin to either forsake the things that he commanded them to do or they would begin to do the things that he commanded them not to do. And then he would warn them over and over again, right? Have you ever done that with your kids? Don't do that again, right? If you do that again, you're going to be in trouble. And over and over again, God warns his people in the Old Testament. And just warning after warning after warning, not, not uh, desiring that they would repent and turn from their ways and not have to face the, the just chastening of the Lord, which according to... Um, Hebrews 12 is not pleasant. It's not meant to be pleasant. It's meant to be difficult. And so Jonah is that guy, and we're really going to see some things unfold this morning in our text that I hope will be helpful for us as we evaluate our own walk with the Lord and our own um, attitude towards his commandments and his will. This morning's message, if you have a, if you have a, a sheet, you will be able to follow along um, with each point, and it'll give you some kind of guidance. If you don't have a sheet, but you'd like one, just raise your hand, and we'll make sure you get a sheet. Somebody will have one to share with you or give to you. Uh, we got one in the back. Jeff, there's one in the back there that would like a sheet. Anybody else that doesn't have a, a sheet to follow along with that would like one? Okay, looks like we're felt fairly well covered. Um, You'll be able to follow along on that sheet with each point. The title of this morning's message is What Jonah Sees from His Knees. And we're going to be in the second scene of this story, um, the first uh, part of it. And, and I might be getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let me just go back here. The, the second scene that we're in, in Jonah chapter number two, comes from the belly of the fish. Okay, Jonah has been swallowed in verse uh, 17 of the close of the first chapter. And now he is, um, or he's been cast overboard, and now he is swallowed up by this fish, and he is reflecting, Jonah is reflecting in a poetic way on this events that have just happened to him. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would be thinking poetically in the belly of a fish, right? Oh, I think I'll write a poem today. <laughs> I don't think that would be where I would be at, but, but Jonah was a, a much more... Uh, uh, creative type of person that something poetic came out of his, the belly of his fish experience. And this is also known in, in, as a poem, it's also known as a prayer. Many view this, um, this conversation or this writing here as a prayer, but, but really what it is is it's a poem reflecting on a prayer. 
So Jonah is now in the belly of the fish, and what he's reflecting on is he's reflecting on his, the transformation that took place in his life while he was in the belly of the water. Okay? So he's not reflecting in this poem on what's taking place in the fish's belly. He's reflecting on the, in the poem on what was taking place when he was at the, at the brink of death. And the Bible talks about in the, in the poem, or Jonah talks about in the poem, that, that the bars had closed in around him. He's talking about being at that, at that point of death, being at, at that, that final, uh, uh, that last breath. If you can, you've seen movies or you can picture it in your mind, you know, somebody just, they, you know, they've been treading water for a season and they just have given up and now they're just sinking and, you know, you see the picture of them just kind of drifting down to the bottom of the ocean. This is Jonah's state here. This is Jonah's condition. He is, he is reflecting after this fish has come and swallowed him up. He is reflecting on, this, um, on that moment that he had in the, in, the, um, in the depths of the sea. That's what he's reflecting on. He's also reflecting on the change. Jonah experiences an extraordinary change. Something clicks in Jonah's mind while he's at the brink of death that he didn't have before. Jonah wasn't writing this poem in chapter number one, was he? Jonah wasn't writing about all these things about God in chapter number one. What was he doing in chapter number one? He was sleeping, he was running, he was avoiding God at at all cost. So to understand the change that takes place in that moment of distress for Jonah, we have to take a look back at what his attitude was prior to being in the fish's belly and trying and prior to being in the belly of the or in the belly of the sea. And this brings us back to scene one. Remember what happened in scene one? God comes to Jonah and gives him a, a direct command. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, right? And I want you to preach to Nineveh. Now listen to me, it's important to know that Jonah is a reflection of us, and Matthew 28, Jesus says to us, what? Go into all the world and make disciples. It's the same command. God gave it to Jonah in the book of Jonah, the narrative of Jonah. God gave it to us in Matthew after Jesus Christ is is getting ready to die and resurrect, and he's going to leave with his disciples this commission what we know of as the Great Commission, so that they will then be called to do what? To go. The same command that God gives Jonah in the book of Jonah. What does Jonah say to God? What does Jonah say to God? He says no. Jonah Jonah says no to a direct command from God. And that's something that we can't fathom when we think about it theologically. Like we... We, we try to, you know, we wrestle with, okay, I, would, I, I, don't, I don't think that's a good idea, right? We see the end of Jonah, and we're like, hey, maybe you shouldn't have done that. But the reality of it is, is how often do we say no to the same God? How often do we refuse to do what God has commanded us to do, or how often do we do the things that God has commanded us not to do? You see, there's something wrong with Jonah, isn't there? When we look at Jonah in this context, we see a, a man who has something wrong with him. For him to say no to a direct command of God, there's something broken in Jonah's thinking. But the reality of it is this morning, there's something broken in our thinking. This is not just a story of Jonah, it's a story of me. It's a story of you. It's a story of us who are given the word of God and given the commands that God's word gives us, and we say no to him, and and I don't think I'm stretching too far as to say that we say no to him on a daily basis. There's something wrong, isn't there? There's something missing when we would say no to the sovereign creator of all things, who is a righteous and holy judge, who has shown his wrath towards the wicked, there's something wrong with our thinking. So in scene one, Jonah says no to God, says no to direct command of God. This is an attitude that we might expect from an unconverted person, but it's not an attitude that we would would expect from a believer. 
And it's especially not an attitude that we would expect from Jonah as a prophet of the Most High God. You see, the problem is Jonah's view of God, at some point in his life, Jonah's view of God had become blurred. Jonah's perspective of God and his holiness and his, and his justice and his righteousness had become blurred. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why or at what time Jonah's perspective of God became blurred, but the reality of it is this. If God tells a person to do something and they say no to him, their view of God is blurred. They don't get him. They don't understand him. They likely don't know him. It might have been an event in Jonah's life. There might have been a time where he went to an event or he experienced something in his life that caused him to have a wrong perspective. It might have been a long number of events of God showing continued grace and mercy to the Hebrew people in the midst of their sins. If you'll remember correctly, this is Jonah's prophecy is at the um, about the 150 year mark of. I think it was 11 kings after the kingdom had split that all of them did that which was evil in the eyes of God. And do you know what Jonah's prophecy was before this prophecy? God is going to increase our size of our land. Jonah gets to prophesy positive things in the midst of of people, kings, rulers doing really, really wicked things. Listen to me. It is so easy for we as Christians to lose sight of God's justice and holiness and righteousness because we're always recipients of his grace and mercy. It's very easy to lose sight of what he requires of us, what he commands of us, and what he expects of us because he doesn't punish us. He always looks at us in favor. And he's always... He's, he's, and we live in a world today where... Men are under his grace, wicked men, horrible men. And they have no reverence for him at all. They have no respect for him at all. Yet he continues to mete out grace and mercy to them. Even we look at the world around us and we say, God, when are you going to stop being merciful and gracious to the wickedness of our world? You know, he'll, he'll stop when it's time. And it'll be obvious when it's time. It might have been an experience, it might have been a false teaching that he heard, it might have been a misunderstanding about God and through the scriptures, it might have been an overemphasis on one of God's characters over, uh, characteristics over another characteristic. I would say that we live in that boat today where we have emphasized God's love over his holiness and we emphasize certain of his positive characteristics over certain of his negative characteristics. Listen, we do not get to choose what parts of God we accept he is God. He, is a, he, is, he has a person. And that we accept him as a whole person. We don't accept parts of his character that we like or that fit into our, into our um, plans for our life. At some point, Jonah's view of God got skewed. And in that Time it set up a stage for this moment where Jonah was going to say no to God's command. So Jonah doesn't see God clearly anymore. He doesn't see God fully. However, because God is a merciful and gracious God, what does he do? He pursues Jonah. He chases after him. Does God at any point in this story, is God at any point in this story required to pursue Jonah? Is there any point in this story that God couldn't have just said, I'm done with you? Did Jonah not deserve for God to say, I'm done with you? So God, in the the face of being, I mean, it's like, you know, if your kid's standing there right in front of your face and he's just saying no and he hits you and, you know, just those types of things. That's what Jonah does to God. And yet God pursues Jonah in a loving, compassionate merciful and gracious way to get him to a place where he can see God clearly. God is merciful. He pursues Jonah, starting the process of clearing Jonah's heart so that he can see God clearly and be used by God mightily. Remember this, without a pure heart, and this is what Jonah was lacking, without a pure heart, it is impossible to see God. 
Without a pure heart, it is impossible to see God. How do we get a pure heart? We get a pure heart from God. It is by his grace and his mercy that we receive a pure heart. But we will never see God without a pure heart. Matthew 5 and verse 8 in the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, which means literally blessed are the single in heart, for they shall see God. James 1 says this, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, meaning he holds on to one thing and holds on to another thing. He says that he should expect to receive nothing from the Lord. Hebrews 12 and verse 14, it says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So here's what God does. God, in his loving mercy for Jonah, begins the process of bringing Jonah back to a place where he can see God rightly and clearly. And how does he do that? Does God snap his fingers and say, Jonah, see me clearly? Does he? What does God do to get Jonah to see him again clearly? You guys know the story. He's in the bottom of the ocean. He's in the belly of the fish. He's in a boat that's being beat apart and being destroyed. What does God do? God orchestrates circumstances in Jonah's life to bring Jonah to a clarity of who God is. God calls Jonah to Nineveh, which is exposing his rebellion. He commissions the storm, which distresses Jonah's circumstances. He commands the mariners to throw Jonah off the ship, which distresses Jonah's circumstances further. Right? Jonah is at the end of the rope. He's at the end of the road. He's he's like the prodigal son. He's eating with the swine now. Then God chooses the fish to come along and to, and to deliver Jonah. God's loving design is such that he brings Jonah back to a clear perspective of who he is. And I want you to think about this, and this goes, brings us to the, to the main topic of this text. Some people believe to see God clearly, we must go higher, right? Right? There are actually tours today where they'll take you up on high mountains and they'll say, hey, you're closer to God now. In the Old Testament, when people wanted to worship, where did they go to worship most of the time? False gods. They went to, what were the places called? They were called the high places. They believed that the higher that they could go, the more close they would be to God and, that, and therefore they would be able to worship him better. Listen, here's what I want to submit to you this morning and want to try to help you see. The best place that we see God from is not the high places, it's the low places. We don't see God clearly in the high parts of life. We see God clearly in the low parts of life. It is from our knees, it is from our knees that we are able to see God clearly. And so what does God do with Jonah? God orchestrates circumstances. God orchestrates a storm. God orchestrates mariners that are going to throw Jonah into the water. God orchestrates a sea that is rough that's going to, going to cause Jonah to sink. He's not going to be able to tread water until the next boat comes by. God orchestrated all of that. God orchestrated those events. Why? To bring Jonah to his senses so that he could see God rightly. And then once he sees God rightly, he is then prepared to minister to, for God mightily. That's what happens in chapter number three, where he preaches to the city of Nineveh, this enormous city, and everybody gets saved. But Jonah wasn't ready to preach to Nineveh until he had first gone to a, through a humbling process himself so that he could see God rightly when he went to Nineveh. You think about it from the story of Peter in the Gospels when he goes and preaches Pentecost. What happens to Peter before he preaches at Pentecost? Anybody know? Everybody knows. He denies Jesus three times, doesn't he? Do you know what that was? That was the process of bringing Peter low so that God could bring him high. That has to happen. It has to happen that we're brought low before we can see God rightly and he can exalt us. 
He tells us in um, the New Testament, I can't think of the exact text, I think we'll read it later in the flow of our message here, but he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I think it's uh, uh, 1 Peter 5, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time or in the right time. You see, God orchestrates things to bring us low so that we can see him clearly. We have this view of God that's like, here we are and here God is. It's like we're like buddies hanging out. You know, everybody is cool and, you know, just like this is how it is. This is me and this is God and wow, this is awesome. But that's not, that's not anywhere near, folks, the right view of who God is. It's not even, it's not, you, you see Isaiah when he has a vision of the Lord and he sees himself as like broken and his, his uh, Daniel sees the Lord and the Bible says that every, every muscle in his body becomes like limp and he just crumbles in front of the Lord. I mean, that's what it means to see God clearly. When you see God clearly, you see yourself the way that you ought to. So let's read this morning. Let's read. I, I want to give you seven things I want you to think about that Jonah saw about the Lord from his knees. What did Jonah see? What did Jonah experience about the Lord from his knees? And maybe this morning you're here and you don't see the Lord rightly and um, maybe you need to be on your knees. Maybe you need to be brought to your knees and God is the one who can do that. Let's listen uh, Listen or read along as I read the second chapter of, of Jonah. The Bible says, Then Jonah, after being uh, cast into the water and swallowed up by the fish, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, or the place of the dead is what Sheol means, the grave. I called out of the belly of the grave, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. All whose waves and billows? All who cast him into the midst of this sea? I thought it was the mariners. You see, Jonah is noticing some things. Jonah is noticing some things now. He's seeing some things that are beyond human's ability to see. He's comprehending some things spiritually that we don't get. These are Jonah's words. But do you know who he sees as supreme in all of this? God. He goes on to say in verse number four, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I again will look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head, and the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. You just notice the, notice the extent of Jonah's distress. This is not Jonah treading water on the top. This is not Jonah seeking down. This is Jonah, he says, he has reached the root of the mountains. What are the root of the mountains? It's the lowest point. And this is, this is a great sea. This is not an insignificant sea. He has reached the lowest point where the weeds are grabbing onto him. And, and this, is Jonah's, this is Jonah picturing what's happening to him. He's, he's, um, uh, he's poetically describing the events that are taking place in his mind while he was sinking into, the, into this ocean. And you can picture it, the, you know, you're maybe struggling at that last moment, but there's weeds that are grabbing onto your arms and your legs, and you're trying to get to the top, but there's no way to get to the top. There's, there's no way to escape these weeds and, and these things that are grabbing onto you, and it's like you're being in a prison. You're being imprisoned, and you can't escape. And maybe you can see the light on the top of the water shining down, and you're, and you're maybe pressing to get there, but you can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. You can't make it. And this is the point that Jonah comes to God. This is the point that Jonah sees God. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. 
those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I want you to note a few things, and I'm going to give you seven thoughts about what Jonah sees in the middle of his distress. First of all, I want you to note that the fish is not a part of Jonah's punishment. It's a part of Jonah's deliverance. Okay, The fish is Jonah's deliverance. God sends the fish by because Jonah has no more breath of air, and that fish has air inside of it to deliver Jonah from the death that he is so, that is so imminent to him. That fish is salvation to Jonah. That fish is deliverance to Jonah. God sends everything to bring Jonah to the lowest point, to where that he is, he is at the face of death, and then God sends the one to save him. Isn't that what the gospel is? One of our hardest things that we deal with, one of the most challenging things that we deal with in our lives is we're never willing to get to the bottom in order to be delivered by the fish. We have figured out every way to deliver ourselves that we don't ever need the fish. You know, Jonah in this day and age would have constructed a huge straw, right? It's just funny, you can laugh at that. To breathe out of because he's, he's more intellectual or technologically minded that he could figure it out on his own. What God needs from people, folks, what God calls us to is to come to the end of ourselves, to where that we recognize that the bars are closed around us. And the only way that there's any hope for any of us is that he sends a deliverer. And 2,000 years ago, God sent a deliverer. And that was Jesus Christ. And he came to deliver people from their sins. He came to deliver you from your sins. He came to deliver me from our sins. But he only delivers those people who are in distress God is not a lifeguard at the pool that is delivering some great swimmer from the water. God is the one who is jumping out of the boat, diving to the deepest point of the water, putting his, dying himself, but yet setting us free to come back to the top. That's what Jesus did for us. And he calls us to an attitude of repentance towards him, an attitude of reverence towards him, an attitude of respect and acceptance towards him. Let me give you seven things that uh, Jonah learned about God from the heart of the sea. From being really close to death, these are the things that Jonah saw about God. And I think maybe again, maybe they were reminders to Jonah because I think Jonah was a believer so at some point, he probably saw these things, but now he's being reminded of these things. And maybe at some point, you saw these things, and you just need a reminder this morning of these things. Let me give you these seven things. Number one, God's devotion to the prayer of desperation. God hears the prayer of the desperate. God hears the prayer of those who have come to the end of themselves. It's likely that Jonah probably had some type of a ritualistic form of prayer that he went through his life, and it was just maybe something that he did maybe every day, maybe every week, maybe every hour or whatever might have been the case, but maybe it just had become something of more of a ritual than it had become a, than it was a reality for him, that it was literally a help for him. What he describes to us in these first few verses is he says, I called out to the Lord, and he says, in or out of my distress. In other words, that he, it's very important, Jonah is making it a point, that this is a unique prayer because it comes out of his distress. And then Jonah makes an even more powerful statement, and he says this, and the Lord answered me. So it's not just, Jonah is not just uh, 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 dealing with the fact that he calls out of distress, but he's pointing to the fact that his prayer that is out of distress is a prayer that the Lord pays attention to. Right? Has your kids, any of, you, any of your kids ever been in trouble and you knew that they were not in that big a trouble? 
that they could figure it out on their own. They just needed to, you know, use their head to figure it out. And you just kind of said, you know what, just go and deal with it, right? Anybody ever done that before with your kids? You know, I've done that with my kids. Okay, I got a few people in here that's done that with their kids. Maybe some others that are not raising their hands, but, but because you know that they can do it on their own, you let them do it on their own. The Lord is the same way. There are often times that we're not to the point where we really recognize our need for the Lord, where we realize how much we need him, and therefore he lets us function in our own abilities until we recognize that we are in desperate need of him. So it says, first of all, God's devotion to the prayer of desperation. It says that he answered his prayer, which means that he paid attention to it. He gave heed to it. The God of the universe listened to my prayer. This is a serious thing for Jonah. Jonah is recognizing something possibly that he hadn't experienced before because his prayers were never presented in in desperate situations. Not only did he answer my prayer, but the next phrase says, he heard my prayer. The word here literally means to hear intellectually, to understand or to pay attention to. He paid attention. He, he, he recognized and thought about and understood what Jonah was going through because of his distressful. The because is that he prayed in distress. He prayed in a desperate moment and God heard his prayer and God responded to his prayer and God listened to his prayer and God cared about his prayer. It wasn't this ritualistic prayer that we go through where we, like the Pharisees, we say the same words every single day. This was a moment of distress, a moment of despair. And the, and the, and the psalmist, over and over again in the Psalms, he describes the same type of despair, calling out to the Lord in a desperate situation, needing him to reach down and to deliver us, else we die. This is what Romans uh, 10, 13 says. If anybody calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. That phrase is not just meant to say, Jesus, save me. This is referring to somebody who has come to a desperate need for salvation. If you don't need to be saved, the Lord will not save you. The rich young ruler said, Lord, come and join me in my endeavors. I would love to have you as a part of my program. I'm a good man. I'm a wealthy man. I'm an okay man, but please join me. And Jesus says to him, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and put yourself in a desperate situation, and then I will come and join you. Or actually, at that point, you will come and join me. The woman at the well had five wives, and the last one was she was living with them. You think Jesus needed to bring that up? What did I say wrong? <laughs> I got to look over from my wife. I said something wrong. <laughs> she had five husbands. <laughs> it's even worse. <laughs> I'm just taking the story to a whole nother level. <laughs> Sorry about that. She had five husbands. You know, Jesus could have learned something from our evangelistic programs today, like not bringing that stuff up. But what was Jesus doing? He was bringing her to a point of desperation. Because Jesus delivers the desperate. Jesus hears the prayers of the desperate. And we go through life, folks, listen to me. We go through life as Americans never desperate. And we wonder why God is never intervening. According to the 23rd Psalm, which you're familiar with, we are never closer to God than than when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. The only place in the 23rd Psalm where 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 we recognize his rod and his staff, which are both tools of bringing the sheep closer, the only time we see those two, two tools being used in a shepherding way is in the valley of the shadow of death. Jonah discovers that the prayer of the desperate reaches the heart of our Lord. Like your child, if he comes to you and he's like, there's nothing, no problem, think about the opposite of that picture. You get a phone call on the phone and there's your child and you can tell that he's at his, he can't breathe anymore. 
and he's sharing with you a story and he's telling you what's happening to him and you know that it's a desperate situation and your heart breaks for him and you want to be there with him and you want to help him or her or whatever, but your heart is different towards that type of a plea than it is towards, Dad, can I have 20 bucks because I need to go and buy a candy bar, right? That's what our prayers are to God. It's an expensive candy bar. (laughs) Keep getting looks over here from my wife. It's just an extreme example. (laughs) Listen to these verses real quick. Isaiah 66, 2 says, All these things my hand has made, and all these things came to be, declares the Lord. In other words, God does, God creates all things, He sustains all these, all these, all these things. And then it says this, but this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one who catches my attention. He who is of a humble and contrite heart, and who trembles at my word. This is somebody who's low, broken on their knees. Psalm 130 verse 1 is a direct parallel to what we're reading here in this, in this poem. He says, out of the depths I will cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And then Matthew 28, or 11, 28 through 30, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You got to be weary first. You got to be weary first. God's devotion to the prayer of desperation. Number two, Jonah learns God's direction over our circumstances. In other words, Jonah learns that God is in control of everything. He is completely sovereign over every situation and every circumstance that takes place in this world. Jonah doesn't learn that in the moment of good. He learns that in the moment of desperation. The reason why Americans have such a hard time with this type of theology is because they are not living in desperate situations. The people in Ukraine right now are begging God to be sovereign. They're begging him to be sovereign. People in America are saying God is not sovereign. We are sovereign. And it's not just America. I, don't, I love being in America. It's other countries as well. We've lost sight of who God is. In desperation, we believe and desire God's sovereignty. It is only when we want to be in control that we neglect and question his sovereignty. Daniel chapter number four, verse 34 and 35, when Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar, he rises up and he looks at his great kingdom and the Bible says, he says, look at what I have made. And the Bible says before the words left his mouth, God had brought judgment on him. And he, for the next seven years, he ate with the animals. And when the Bible says that he came to himself, Here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. After seven years of eating with the animals, God had brought Nebuchadnezzar to a state of lowness. I mean, there's not much lower you can go than that, right? Here's what he says. At the end of these days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand, and no one can say to him, why have you done this? It is at the bottom of the sea that you look and you see how sovereign God is. It is at the lowest point. It is in the pigsty. It is eating with the animals where you will recognize how sovereign our God is. He does as he pleases. And sometimes it hurts. And sometimes it doesn't. He recognizes, he recognizes God's direction over all of our circumstances. Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, those are called according to his purpose. How can everything work for good if God is not in control? Number four or three, God, God's driving us away to bring us close. 
Notice what he says. He says, when I went down to the land, I'm, 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 I'm past it here. Verse four, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Who was the one driving him away? Who's the actor in all of this? God is. I am driven away from your sight. So he is being driven away from God's sight. Yet, he says, I shall again look upon your holy temple. In other words, in the, in the way that this poetry f- flows, what he is saying is, is that your driving me away from your sight is actually going to result in my being brought into your temple. God drives us away to bring us close. God often pushes us a little bit so that when we come to him, we will be able to get close. We'll be able to to be near him. Jonah realizes that God's pushing is sometimes God's pulling And God is pushing us into a position or state of despair so that when we draw near to him, it will be a transformation time. Our desperation often brings us close to Christ. Romans 1 through 3 tells us of the desperation of our sins. And Romans 3 through 6 or 4 through 6 introduces us to the deliverer of Jesus Christ. No one comes to Jesus without seeing their need for him. And sometimes he has to let us see that before he lets us come. One of the biggest challenges of our day-to-day is false converts, people who come to Jesus with all the wrong motives. They're not repentant. They're not full of faith. They're not desperate. They just want Jesus because he is a, the new. He's cool. He's wise. He's whatever. Sometimes Jesus has to hold us away so that he can then let us come in. So what he says here, he says very clearly, I was driven away from your sight, but I will still see you in your temple. James 4 and verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Number, uh, the next the next thought as you go down your list. God's deliverance of the, of the distressed. He says in the next few verses, in verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Actually, the verse before that, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jesus, this is a reflection of Jesus, of God, sending that fish to deliver him from the distress that he was in. Sending him the, the, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament to deliver us from the distressed situations that we're in. It's in those distressed situations, folks, that God hears us. It's in those situations that God cares, and it's in those situations that God brings deliverance. It is God's desire for us to recognize that we're in a distressed situation, to kneel down before him and to ask him for that help. That is Romans 10, 13. For whoever calls upon the Lord will be delivered or saved. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's go next. God delights in those who disregard idols. Listen to what he says here. This, this whole text is about God's, what, what the, the Hebrew word is hesed. This is about God's loving kindness. Here's what the Bible says. And what, did, what, does, what does Jonah need more than anything else? It need, he needs God's loving kindness. He needs God's mercy. Here's what he says. Those who, rep- those who pay regard to vain idols forsake any hope of steadfast love. Those who regard vain idols in our desperate situations, in our moments of desperation, if we pursue vain deliverance, empty deliverance, man-made deliverance. We are forsaking the very deliverance that God can give. That's what he says to Jonah. 
The mercy that God provides is to those who lean on it fully and acknowledge it as being the sole source of their deliverance. He tells them in Psalm 31, verse 6, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, for I trust in the Lord. And Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. Listen to these two evils that they committed. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have made their own cisterns for themselves. In In other words, God has offered to give them the water of life, but what they have done is they have drilled in and they've made their own water of life. And these cisterns, he says, are broken and they cannot hold any water. I think one day we're going to realize how broken our cisterns were that we drilled for. And we're going to look and we're going to see how many times we trusted in our ability to drill new cisterns and we forsook the very mercy that God was offering to us. That's what he says to Jonah. And it took Jonah being in the very heart of the water, at the very bottom of the water, to realize that. And it's going to sometimes take some of us to get to that point where we're at the brink of death and we realize Jesus is the only one that can deliver me. The last two, and I won't belabor them. Verse number nine, he says, but I will have the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay God develops in Jonah a heart of thankfulness and obedience. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to be thankful. He wants us to be obedient. And we, and we can't have those things unless we see him clearly. Job is a good example of this. He said in Job 42, I have heard of you with the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes can see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then lastly, is God's decisiveness in salvation. In other words, God is, the Bible says that the last phrase of that chapter, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah prays that, and then immediately God says in verse number 10, and the Lord spake to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out of its mouth onto dry land or onto dry land. It is God's decision who he shows mercy to and who he doesn't. Listen to me. Jonah's problem was this. He did not recognize that God was sovereign over his salvation. And whoever he sends his children to to preach the gospel, that our responsibility is obedience. His responsibility is to save. God decides where we go. God decided where you live. God decided where you work. God decided where you're at in your life, not so that you could be great, a great success, but so that you could be a minister of the gospel. You could share the gospel with somebody else. God decided that. It's not for you to decide the worthiness of the people around you or the ability for them to understand. That's God's business. God is in the business of saving. We're in the business of preaching the gospel. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is, it is his possession. It is something that he purchased on the cross with his own blood, and he resurrected, and now he has salvation available, and he can give it to whomever he wills, and he chooses to call us as, as evangelists and says, you go and preach the gospel, but know this, and Jonah had to come to the realization of this, salvation is the Lord's. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He hated the Ninevites. But you know what he came to conclude? Salvation is the Lord's. I don't get to decide who gets it. You don't get to decide who gets it. All we get to do is share the gospel. And God decides who gets mercy and who doesn't. He tells us in Romans 9, verse 15 and 16, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who is the one who shows mercy. In closing, my challenge to you is simply this. My heart for you is this. I want to encourage you, first and foremost, know this. Oftentimes, we don't see God clearly until we are broken before him. 
We don't get who he is until we are brought low to see who we are. So here's my encouragement to you. Allow yourself to be brought low. Don't always be resisting what God is bringing into your life that's going to humble you so that you can see him clearly. Don't always avoid those things that are challenging because it's those things that will help you see God rightly. Sometimes it's a a husband or it's a wife or it's children or it's circumstances or it's finances or it's health that God is bringing us low through. Is it more important that we see God than that we're delivered from our troubles? Allow yourself to go through these difficulties, see God rightly, and then be obedient to God's commands. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jonah's willingness to, through the inspiration of the Spirit, to write out his story, to give us a picture of his failures and his transformation and the things that you worked in his life. And as we'll see further in the chapter, that he goes back and struggles again. And just so difficult, Lord God, to stay faithful and focused. And I just pray that you would help us Help us to see you clearly, to see you rightly, to understand all of these things that Jonah gets when he's in desperation. Help us to get them as well. We love you and we thank you for this time together this morning. May your word go forth and return and be fruitful for for your purposes. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.